Welcome to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. She's a Canada Research Chair in Global Health Equity and Social Justice with Marginalized Populations and an Associate Professor at the University of Toronto's Factor in Wintosh Faculty of Social Work. Every week, the show features amazing speakers from around the world talking about stigma from research, lived experiences, and activism perspectives. Why should we care about stigma? What can we do about it? Thank you for tuning in. Let's start the show. I'm super thrilled and honored to introduce today's guest, Professor Boisin, who is the Dean of the Factor Imantash Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto. He is also the Sandra Rotman Chair in Social Work. He used to be the director of the STI Intervention Network and co-director of the Chicago Center for HIV Elimination. He was professor at University of Chicago for two decades, and a central focus of his scholarship is examining the impact of structural and neighborhood violence on a wide range of youth problem behaviors, and his research demonstrates of the problems of neighborhood violence exposure and their linkages with youth health outcomes. He has a book entitled America, the Beautiful and Violent, Black Youth and Neighborhood Trauma in Chicago, published in 2019. And he has more than 28 years of social work clinical experience in the areas of substance abuse, adult psychopathology, and adolescent and family therapy. You have probably seen him on the news countless times recently talking about his expertise in the area of race and racism as well. So thank you so much. We're so honored to have you today. Thank you so much for having me, Carmen. So first things first, I just read a whole big explanation about you and what you've done. But I want to know if I'm in an elevator with you and we're going up one floor. You have one or two sentences. And I say, what are you all about? What's your work all about? How do you tell me that in, in a quick elevator ride? So I would tell someone that my work is really focused on understanding how the place you live, the identity you have in terms of race, and how social circumstances such as poverty impact your future outcomes, impact your future life chances. So how does that relate to school completion and achievement, um, the types of partners you choose, your risks for HIV, risks for unplanned pregnancies, Place, race, and class. How does it impact your life trajectories, your life future as a young person of color? That's amazing. And I want to imagine that I'm going to show up to your house right now with a time machine. And there's room for physically distancing in the time machine. And I want to say, bring us back to the time and place when you thought, I want to study this. I want to look at, you said race, place, and class, right? Um, and, And how they impact our future. So where would we go in the time machine when you thought, this is something I want to focus on? I think my very first memory of just being aware of how place makes a difference around how people perceive you and the value that they ascribe to you was when I was a preteen and my brother was attending a very prestigious high school in the main city. And I grew up in a Commonwealth country in, in Trinidad in the West Indies. It's so and, beautiful there. Oh it my is goodness. so beautiful, absolutely. <laughs> and 
he always told folks that he lived in a different, what we will call postal code or zip code. He lived in a different town that was just probably like maybe three minutes away from the border of where we lived. But he never identified the town that we lived in. He always identified the town that was adjacent, that was seen to be more affluent or prestigious. You know, in my mind as a preteen, I didn't have the language for stigma. But as I got older, I realized that by identifying as living in this particular town, it gave him, in his mind, more status in the eyes of peers. Ah. And so that was one way, you know, I, I sort of came to a real experience of how place matters. And then when I started high school as a freshman in college, migrating from the Caribbean to the United States, I was really shocked because it was my first time I had to identify my racial category on a form. Ah. And never before in my life had I had to identify myself in a racialized term. And it, it felt like I went down the rabbit hole comment. It was mm. like, where am I? This is a different world. And I saw all the choices in front of me, and I didn't fit any of those choices. But I knew that whatever box I checked would have significant implications in terms of how people viewed me. Wow. Is that so, that's such an interesting shift just mentally even you know and I've lived in some places like Ghana and West Africa and I've had friends from North America visit who were you know coded as black being there and being like this is the first time I don't feel like a minority so the reverse you know situation can happen when people come and are all of a sudden your your immigration status is different and then you have to yes. you have to sort of attach yourself to this category that didn't exist where you you know or wasn't it, so codified exactly and it it was it was more than just sort of identifying myself as black but what type of black so imagine going to a private college with less than 550 students and out of the 550 students all but 20 students were white wow <laughs> and, and I identified myself on a box. I don't remember. This is almost 30 years ago. But I know I either put black or other or something on the box. But then what I came to realize that it wasn't just a matter of identifying myself as black, but what type of black. I vividly remember Carmen, and it was like almost yesterday walking across campus. And as an international student, I had arrived there a few days earlier. And I was just so eager for my classmates, for the other students to arrive on campus so I could get to know them. And I saw another young black male walking across campus. And in the South, we have what we call the Southern nod. Uh, I've heard this. Another person that looked like you, you acknowledge them, right? That's a sort of Southern nod. And he, he nodded his head at me and I nodded my head at him and I went over to him. And as soon as I opened my mouth, his smile moved from welcoming to a vision of being shocked. (sighs) So as soon as I opened my mouth and he heard an accent, he realized that I was not the sort of black that he identified with. In a specific accent, right? Because there's so many many accents in the U.S., but he probably identified you as being not American. Not American. And think about in the 1980s in a small town, Lauren North Carolina, you were either black or white. 
there was very little variation in between. This was before you had Latinx um, moving into these areas and different groups, Asians, high numbers of Asians moving into these groups. It was basically the black or the white paradigm. And I opened my mouth and he looked totally confused. The smile turned from a smile to confusion and he turned and he walked away from me. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so you must it, have felt terrible. I was bewildered. Again, <laughs> I had checked that box and I was now kind of figuring out all the different layers of what that box meant. So, so here I was as a black male with a very different cultural experience and in some ways being pushed aside by folks who identified as African-American because I did not represent their experience. And then on the flip side, I had the, the opposite reaction. I was nominated for a student award. And, you know, I was so excited as a international student to get some bursaries to kind of help me complete my education. And this was an award by a local women's group in North Carolina. I was nominated for this award and my name, you know, is not on paper, doesn't seem like particularly obvious racialized name, Dexter Rommel Voiset. And when I walked in to be introduced as a recipient of the award, I saw the look of shock on the, the woman's face because she hadn't realized that I was a black student. Wow. So her, she looked almost this, this picture of confusion and terror in her face. And then when I opened my mouth and she heard an accent, it moved from confusion and terror to a sign of relief that I wasn't oh. a domestic black I was an international black oh my goodness. and somehow my experience or my experience around race and and white tension would be different than the experience of African Americans who had a very long and troubled experience mm -hmm. so she assumed that my experience as an international student would somehow make me less having less angst or less animosity around racial inequality. So I had this really interesting experience when I came to the U.S. around not fitting in with the white groups because of my identity and not quite fitting in with the, with the domestic blacks. So this is where I, I learned in a very real way the experience around race-related stigma. So yeah. in Trinidad, I had the, no, the, the experience of place and class-related mm -hmm. stigma. And then in the U.S., I learned the challenges of navigating race-related stigma. So it's not surprising now that I study race, <laughs> yeah. class, and place-based stigma. I, I, I like that you, <laughs> you look at the intersection of those three things. I want to ask you the first sort of stigma question, although you really have given us so much wisdom and insight already into the way that it looks like. If someone's going to say, make me care about this, why, why should I care? You know, maybe I have all these other things going on. Why should I care about race, place, and class stigma? What does it have to do with me if, if I don't really um, am experiencing those kinds of stigma? Well, you know, whether you don't experience that, I guarantee folks that in their lifetime, they would experience some form of stigma. Mm -hmm. and, and why care about other groups that don't look like you? Why care about the folks who are living in postal codes or zip codes who are experiencing class and place-based stigma? Why care about folks who are black or indigenous 
and experiencing race-based stigma. Why care about that? Because putting the, the moral perspective aside that it is the right thing to do, mm -hmm. it's a common human thing to do, it's part of our common humanity, it impacts us all. So mm -hmm. we know from you know, big studies looking at large numbers that in societies where you have significant gaps between the races, you have significant gaps between the classes, you have significant gaps based on where people live in terms of opportunity, then all of our collective life expectancy, how long we live as a society, our overall health as a combined society tends to be lower. Mm. So, so it's good for all of us. So it's good for all of us. And although those direct and indirect costs associated with stigma, when stigma gets advanced or perpetuated, although it's not always very evident to us, we all pay the price of those mm -hmm. inequalities. So mm -hmm. why care about the person who lives across a, a different zip code is because at the end of the day, it's going to impact your life expectancy and your quality of life. Let's just look at COVID, right? Mm -hmm. mm. Uh, and look at the so communities true. that have not had access to testing, communities that don't have access to uh, medical treatment. Those communities, because those folks have been left behind, it impacts all of us in the general society. It's so, true. I live in one of the most high uh, COVID prevalence neighborhoods in Mount Dennis. And I live in Mount Dennis as well. Do you? You're <laughs> my neighborhood. I did not know that. So, and you can see why. We have very crowded bus, bus routes. We have yes. a lot of people who work in factories. We have a lot of high rises where people are sharing yes. um, elevators. There's a lower income. There's, you know, there's a lot of other these social determinants and it, it impacts everybody. You're, you're so right. COVID is the perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. And if we don't address the higher risks that folks living in high rises experience, then that impacts all of us. Many of these folks are riding the buses with us. They're, they're frontline workers and it impacts all of us. So I think COVID has laid bare not only the type of race class and place-based inequality and how stigma is very much tied to that, but it also is laid bare how what's happening in one corner of Toronto impacts all of us across mm. Toronto. I mean, you've convinced me. I, I definitely think that we should care about one another. The next question I have on stigma, maybe you could break it down into an example of you know, something current day happening that kind of shows that intersection of race, place, and class stigma. You, you kind of alluded to it with the situation of COVID. Um, is there anything that comes to mind that, that you think would help the listeners to sort of understand what does this look like? Yeah. So think about, you know, all the global attention that was brought to Mr. George Floyd's murder. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. And all the, the names that started being listed as a result of that. Mm -hmm. right? But very often, the names of black women were not voiced. Brianna Taylor still Brianna Taylor. hasn't, yes. the cops haven't been charged still. Yeah, yeah. And, and not only the names of black women, and there have been several, they, they were sort of in the shadows as it related to this conversation. 
but you also think of the names of, of trans men and yes. trans women, black trans men and trans women, right? Mm-hmm. So you can think about, very often folks are like, well, what is stigma? How do I really sort of think about this, right? And I, I tell folks, just think about it as a spot or a blemish mm. that's related to either part of your characteristic or a place or a particular behavior that's ascribed to you, right? Some sort of negative spot or blemish. But in many of these conversations, a black women were not part of the major dialogue. Also, trans individuals were not part of the major dialogue. So you can think about how structural violence, police violence, uh, but who gets the attention, who gets the advocacy, right? So you can think about not just race, but also gender, You could also think about sexual orientation. You could also think in terms of location, right? Where people live and sort of place. Many of the voices have not been equally heard. Who do we pay attention to or not is also part of the way that stigma is, I think, perpetuated, you know, by by not finding out about so many of, of those instances. You're so right. So I have the last stigma question before I go to the wild cards <laughs> and the listener can really get to know you. What can the listener do? If they're walking their dog right now, if they're <clears throat> sitting on the bus listening to this podcast, cleaning their house. I know I like to, to listen to podcasts when I go for a walk or clean my house. What can people do about this? What is your thoughts about the ways that we can all be part of the solution? You know, putting on my hat as a, as a social work provider and as a therapist, sometimes I've, I've often sort of asked myself the question, why it is and how is it that people are so invested in this notion of stigma in terms of perpetuating stigma? Mm. And, you know, uh, many folks in the helping profession would say that a lot of our motivations as individuals sort of come back to us as individuals. How does it assist my own self-interest? And you can think about stigma in a way, you know, in terms of discrediting or having a blemish on one group based on some sort of characteristic or presumed behavior or identity. You know, a part of me thinks that very often it goes back to this notion for people to feel superior. Mm. So we stigmatize, we stigmatize in order to feel better than other to people. To feel better than, to feel that I have a head up on the other person, that I have a one up, right? Mm. Yeah, you know, I am I'm black, but you know what? I, um, someone saying, you know, I have light skin, mm. right? I am not dark skin. Oh, I'm black and I have, as folks in ethnic communities would say, good hair. Okay. Oh, I'm LGBTQI, but you know what? I can pass as heterosexual, right? So you have even groups that are stigmatized, continue to stigmatize other folks within those groups. And I think it goes back to the sense of, you know, some sort of innate wound in terms of feeling that I'm okay. I'm, I'm, I'm wounded, but I'm still superior. So we're kind of doing this out of feeling insecure or insecure. feeling that we're yes. not enough. And so then we have to like lift ourselves above someone to say, oh, look at that. There's somebody below me. Somebody below me, right? Or, and, and again, this is just my sort of thinking, you know, based on living in my body and living in this world now for several decades, things that I've been reflecting on. Or... Let's take it to George Floyd to lift yourself up by sitting on someone's neck. Mm. <laughs> right? So, so I, think, I think part of it, it goes to that. And, you know, one of the ways that I sort of 
break down this in terms of having conversations is that we all live and die towards the same end. Mm. It doesn't matter if you're a college professor, you're president, you're a sanitation worker, you're a nurse, you're a doctor, we all retire and, and come to the same end. We all mm. want the same things for our families, right? We all want to feel that our lives matter, right? And, you know, I think, you know, just being a good, decent human being, being, being aware and walking this world with a certain amount of awareness is important. But I, I think, you know, part of it is, is just kind of, for me personally, coming to that realization and being aware of that. But I think, you know, how do we stop stigma? You know, by, if you say something, if you see something, say something, mm-hmm. talk up. I think it's not demonizing people who, in, let me be careful with this. You know, I, I, say, I say we are all sinners, sufferers, and saints when oh. it comes to st- stigma. And I think very often, you know, we... Sinners, we, sufferers, and saints. I've never yeah, heard this. We're all sinners, sufferers, and saints. You know, we all, uh, we all suffer from stigma. We all perpetuate stigma, and we all have mm. the ability to change stigma. Right? I love that. I think that's so accurate because the first example you gave was think about, or maybe I'm, I'm, re- I'm paraphrasing this, but think about the ways that we, each of us might be putting other people down and where that right. really comes from is a place of inadequacy and yes. insecurity and maybe a lack of awareness about, about that. And so that's the part where we're perpetuating it. But then also some people, you know, if you're not going to experience stigma now, wait till you get really old, right? Exactly. Age-related stigma, right? <laughs> right. And and wait, you get old, but think about <laughs> you have kids and what your kids might go through, right? So we really want to all want to kind of leave this world a better place, if not for ourselves, for our children, for our offsprings, right? And we're all connected to someone. We're all connected to the aunts, the mothers, the brothers, the grandparents, right? And we're all, they're all subject at some point in their lives to stigma. Mm-hmm. So I think part of it is just being aware that, you know, it, it sounds sort of simplistic, but I think it's, it's where the real world comes in to realize that we are okay in ourselves and we're enough. And we don't have to have illegitimate power or legitimate mm. sense of value by putting somebody else's down. I think totally. the power that comes from, from stigmatizing is an illegitimate form of power. Yeah. So really finding sort of true power innately within yourself. I think that's important. And then realizing that we're all connected, as I said. But also realizing, too, that stigma, you know, causes a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. Causes a lot of pain to individuals. So think about individuals who, who refuse receiving certain types of treatment, mm-hmm. going for certain types of tests, following up on medical appointments because yeah. they're stigmatized. You're you know, right. there was a notion, you know, um, and, and maybe you're too young to remember this comment, but, you know, in the 60s and the 70s, when cancer really wasn't talked about, it was called the C word. Mm. And people talked about I have the C, and they wouldn't even say the word cancer. Wow. Now it's, lot, co- now it's COVID. Right, now it's COVID, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But there, there was so much stigma around people getting cancer that very often people said, well, what did you do? Were you a smoker? Yeah. You know, it was assumed that you did something wrong in order for your body to fail you right? Or you didn't take care of yourself. So there was a lot of stigmatizing around that. And there were people who never told their family or friends, and they never got the support they needed because of the stigma associated to that. 
And you could also think about, you know, the stigma associated with HIV, sometimes the stigma associated with racism. There are some folks who sometimes are ashamed to say that they've been discriminated against because folks will very often turn around and say, well, that's your fault. Or are you sure? Oh, are you sure? Overestimating it. You're paranoid, (laughs) right? You know what I'm saying? So again, people uh, very often, their lives are impacted by stigma in real ways. That is amazing. I'm I'm so happy that you join us today. I feel like you really covered a lot of dimensions of stigma and you gave us some really important things to think about. But I am not done yet. We, <laughs> we have some quick wild card questions. I know you're a busy man, but I also want the listeners to get to know the real you. Okay, wild card question number one. Okay. Drum roll. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What are you binging on Netflix? Or are you just too busy to watch Netflix? Oh, no, no, no. So, you know, I'm I'm more like a HGTV kind of person. I always said if I was... Like House Hunters and things like that? House Hunters. I love um, that. Love it or list it. uh, Hmm. Design within reach. Common, if I was not an academic, I would be an architect or a designer because I just love what physical space does for us as individuals, how we feel with, with physical space. And I guess this kind of goes back to my earlier example with my brother sort of teaching me that space and place made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I love the ability for individuals to see themselves differently or feel differently about themselves based on their lived environment. So I, I love HGTV. I love that show. And I also <laughs> like, I don't know if you watch Queer Eye, but they go in and they redo people's spaces. Yep, yep, I've and seen I, that as I well. Like, yes. I like that. And people are just, I was like, oh my gosh. I would say one time, if we're in Trinidad at the same time, there are so many beautiful places. Yes. Oh, <laughs> I would yes, love to. Yes, I'm yes. missing. I've only been there twice, but I'm like, oh my gosh, I miss it. It's um, a special place. It really is. I have my second wildcard question. You can go anywhere in the world for dinner with anyone, living or dead. Where do you take them and who do you take? Well, my mom is no longer with us. She passed on about a year ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And- you know, after a very long life, she had an amazing life, uh, quite an incredible woman. Uh, she lived until she was 83 years old. And my mom, you know, for someone who was born in the 1930s, uh, she was seen as a, a woman ahead of her times because she broke a lot of different barriers and she sort of taught me by example. But I'll take my mom probably to any place that she wanted to go to. Nice. Did she have a place that she was... Well, Well, she's traveled a lot in the U.S. and so on, but I think she would have enjoyed going to London. And London is one of my favorite cities, so I'd like to think that it would be one of her favorite cities. Nice. And particularly growing up in a British Commonwealth country, everything is sort of tied to the crowd. Yeah. So I I think she would have appreciated (laughs) that. Um, I I take my mom to London for lunch and, and then take her on a a tour of uh, Buckingham Palace. Oh, my my <laughs> grandma, like my mom's from England too. My grandma was quite obsessed with the yes. royal family in Buckingham Palace. Oh, yes, Palace yes, yeah. The no, that's the old, the old colonial history. I think it's hard to get that out of our parents and our grandparents. Yes. Yeah. Okay, the last question. Is there any words of wisdom or advice that have been meaningful to you that you would like to share with the listeners? 
Well, you know, uh, follow your passion. And I think in life, it's, it's, it's great when your passion aligns with your paycheck. And I think for folks like, like you and, and me, Carmen, and many others, and folks who are doing jobs in healthcare or design or whatever, when your passion and your paycheck aligns, you're really mm. a fortunate individual. And so the folks have said, if you find something that you really enjoy doing, you'd never work another day in your life because it wouldn't feel like work. And I mm-hmm. guess, you know, for me, what I've done at different stages in my career, I've, I've been a banker, I've worked with an airline, I've been a... Really? I always wanted to work with an airline. <laughs> I always was like, oh, that's a really good way to travel. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done all different types of jobs, you know. In, in high school, I was, uh, in college, I was a security guard, you know. That one I didn't enjoy that much, <laughs> but... You know, I've been fortunate to have my passions and my paychecks aligned. And I, I would say to anyone, if you're fortunate to be able to combine those two things together, you're really fortunate indeed because you'll do something memorable, you'll leave a mark, you'd be inspired to align your passion with your paycheck. Amazing. That's such a, a great way to look at it. And I do feel like, I feel lucky that I like what I do a lot. Yeah, you know? we are fortunate. So we're lucky. Thank you so much, everybody. I'm going to have a link to Dr. Boysen and his area of research, some links to your book and your profile. So if you want to learn more about our fantastic guest today, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, Carmen, for all the incredible work you do and for inviting me as a guest. Thank you for listening to Everybody Hates Me, Let's Talk About Stigma, a podcast hosted by Dr. Carmen Logie. Join us next week for more inspiring and motivating conversations with stigma leaders from around the world. Mm-hmm.